WPTP.net. Welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible Line. So glad that you can join us today as we open the word of God, the only book God ever wrote, the only book God ever inspired. And maybe as you've been studying it, you have a question or you'd like biblical counsel on some issue or challenge you're facing in your life and ministry. And if that's the case, if we can help you, we will do our best by the grace of God. Again, the the number locally is 843-525-1859, or you can reach us um, directly at our toll-free number, which is 877-WAGP980, 877. I know some of the cell phones now don't have the letters on them, so it's 924-7980. That's the toll-free number. Or a number of people email us directly into the studio. And if you'd like to do that, you can do so at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Either way, you can get through, and we would be happy and by God's grace, we'll do our best to answer your questions. Rick, great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've gotten a number of calls that have come in over the uh, last week, uh, so let's get to them right now. Um, someone wrote, does forgiving someone for their wrongs against you mean that you need to be in their life? What if their family? Well, listen, um, God calls us to forgive. One of the marks of a believer is forgiveness. It's kind of interesting when you think about the passages that Jesus spoke of in reference to forgiveness. On the one hand, he spoke of forgiving someone else as a mark that you're truly converted. On the other hand, he he spoke of forgiveness as a mark that you're in fellowship with God. Do you remember on that occasion when the apostles came to the Lord Jesus and they said, Lord, you know, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up till, you know, seven times, which was the popular rabbinical teaching of the day. And so he used to exaggerate an infinite period of time. He says, no, up to 70 times seven. Keep forgiving. Don't ever stop forgiving. We are to be a forgiving person. Then he went on and he he told a parable to illustrate the point. He said, you know, a, a fellow went to his king one day and, and uh he he fell down, you know, before his 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 king and said, "Look, I I owe you a lot of money." And he said, "Well, pay up, pay up now, or you're headed towards prison." And he owed him a, a debt that would be equivalent to about twenty million dollars in today's standard, but because of his 
his his sincere begging, so to speak. The king just felt compassionate, decided to show mercy on him, and he let him go. He goes home. He has a servant who doesn't owe him $20 million, but 100 bucks. And that guy falls on his face, asks for mercy, and he said, no, no way. Uh, you're going to pay up, and if you don't pay up, you're, 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 you're headed to the clinker. And off he went. And, of course, Jesus used that as an illustration that if we're unwilling to forgive, so our Heavenly Father will mark us in a place that he doesn't really want to mark us as, a place of eternal retribution, because he's not our Heavenly Father. A mark that you know God as your Father, where the Spirit of God cries out in your heart, Abba, Father, is that you have a forgiving spirit. And if you don't have a forgiving spirit, it's just proof positive that you don't really know the Lord. Um, So on the one hand, it is a mark of conversion. On the other hand, it is true and very possible that a true, genuine Christian can withhold forgiveness. If that were not the case, then Jesus would not teach his people to pray, you know, forgive us of our debts as you have forgiven us of our debtors. Uh, God would not inspire the Apostle Paul to write a statement like Ephesians 4.30, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. God's called us to be a forgiving people. And so, you know, sometimes there's family members that you deal with. and, And two, let me just say this, that sometimes we equate forgiveness Uh, with uh, having a close, intimate relationship with someone. Some people you have to forgive. Maybe maybe you have a family member who has abused you, and you have to forgive them from your heart. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to be best friends with them or— or, you know, if they haven't truly repented in their lifestyle and the issues that you've dealt with, you, you may not want to spend time with them. And it might be the most spiritual thing in the world. Let's just say exaggerate a point sometimes and you can see the wisdom of it. Let's say you had some family member who abused one of your children. And, um, yeah, you'd have to forgive them. But if they're, let's say they abused them with anger and beat your child up, you know, while you may forgive them, uh, the fact is, is that if they don't have a, uh, if they can't deal with their anger problem, you, you wouldn't want that person to be a part of uh, your, your family in the sense of hanging around with your child if they might do it again. So keep that in mind that, you know, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with their lifestyle or that you have to embrace a close intimate relationship. But if they're, if you don't forgive them, you're going to have real problems. There's going to be bitterness in your heart. A lot of angry people are angry because they have unforgiveness in their heart. That's a root of a whole lot of anger is unforgiveness. And until you forgive as God has forgiven you. And sometimes I'll, I'll have people who are really struggling with forgiving someone. I'll, I'll have them make a list of all the things they can think of that God has forgiven them of. And it may seem a little mechanical at first. I said, no, I want you to do this. I want you to think of everything that God has ever forgiven you of and begin to make a list. And then we'll have them, I'll have them write down the one or two things that they're holding an an unforgiving spirit towards someone else. And, And it comes down to that illustration that Jesus gives. Listen, if God can forgive you, of your ninety of your twenty million dollar debt, shouldn't you be able to forgive someone else of their hundred dollar debt? That that's the point of the whole parable there in Matthew chapter eighteen. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? 
his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do for you. It's if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So a mark of conversion is that you forgive and a mark that you're in fellowship with God is that you forgive. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller, and so we always give them preference. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, I have a question. Yes, thanks um, for calling. Go I, ahead. I know that the Bible says that, um, you know, man should not be alone. And I also know <clears throat> that, um, well, my question is, so I know that some people, um, ha- you know, God um, give them, like, a spiritual gift to not want anybody or not to have sex, you know, or not to have any kids, just remain, you know, um, let's say, solid, you know, the rest of their lives. Yes. So my question is, um, <clears throat> would God put the desire in a person if he meant for them to, to, to not be with anybody? Well, it's a great question. Uh, sometimes people ask, well, how do I know whether I have the gift of celibacy? Let me read the passage that you're referencing uh, the apostle makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 7. Chapter 7, verse 1 is a hinge verse in the book of 1 Corinthians, not concerning the things about which you wrote. And so beginning in 7.1, Paul moves to questions that they wrote him about. They said, you're God's man, you're God's apostle. We need to know God's view on some of these subjects. So in 7.1 and following, he begins to answer their questions one by one. And one of their questions was, especially in light of the current persecution that the church was facing, I thought, well, maybe it's just better not to get married. I mean, if a guy gets married to his wife and then he gets knocked off and she's left as a widow and children to support and raise, you know, maybe it's just better not to get married in light of the current persecution. So Paul says, concerning the things about, um, about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And by the way, that still applies. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And he's going to give the exception in that. And if we would just follow that rule of purity when we're single people, um, God designed physical touch, sexual physical touch as a machine that is supposed to continue to grow and result in what God designed it to result in. And so sometimes teenagers or even adults saying, well, you know, I can be involved with my girlfriend a little bit physically, but one thing leads to another. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But he says, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband, he says, fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. There were immoralities, which he's just dealt with in the sixth chapter. And Paul argues in the sixth chapter that, listen, when you are engaged in an adulterous relationship, you're carrying God, the Holy Spirit, into that adulterous relationship. It's an awful, awful thing to do. And he reminds them that, listen, don't be deceived. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Uh, That's the... um, female side of a homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards shall, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, such were some of you, but God washed you, sanctified you, justified you. His point is, since God no longer sees you as an adulterer, 
a homosexual, a drunkard, a swindler. But as someone who's a saint, you are to live differently. And so his exhortation in 12 through 20, uh, crescendoing his argument with, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're not your own. You've been bought at a tremendous cost. So you're to live to glorify God in your body. And then he says, so in light of that, let's get into the application of it. About the things you wrote to me, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, and some of those immoralities were fueled by a false asceticism, a false sense of spirituality, like it was, oh, more holy and more righteous not to have physical sex with your wife. And he says, listen, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his body. The wife does. So he says, stop depriving one another. That's not the spiritual thing to do. Except, he says, here's the caveat, by agreement for a time, you may devote yourselves to prayer. So he assumes that couples pray together. And if you're a couple and you're having trouble in your marriage, maybe one reason is you don't pray together. Start praying together. See what God does in your marriage. He assumes the relationship is healthy, that there will be times, though, that for prayer and fasting, you might add, um, they would uh, not be engaged physically. But then he says, come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not as uh, not of command. Yet, he says, I wish all men were even as myself am. How is Paul? Well, Paul had the, what we call sometimes today the gift of celibacy. However, he says, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What's the norm? Well, the norm is for most people to be married. That's the norm. It's good for a man not to be alone. That's what God said in the opening chapters of the Bible. It's what Jesus affirmed in the Gospels. Generally speaking, God calls people to be married. But God calls some people with the gift of singleness or celibacy. Uh, By the way, the, the gift of celibacy, so to speak, as it's called, is not a spiritual gift like God gives you at the moment of conversion. It's not so much something God does through you as much as something that God does to you. And there are some people who are not weird. They've just been wired differently where they can go through this whole life without a wife, without a husband. Uh, John R. Stott, John R. W. Stott, who just recently went to heaven, one of the great uh, Anglican Bible teachers of the 20th and the first part of the 21st century. He's in his late 80s, maybe 88, 89. I can't remember. Just went home to be with the Lord a few months ago, and he was single his whole life. And I was often amazed. How does this guy have time to crank out all these books? And then I met him one day and found out he was single. And um, you wouldn't have known it from his Bible teaching or his books, never really mentioned it. But he was single, and that gave him some, what Paul will later say in this chapter, undistracted time and devotion to do the work of the Lord. So, you know, people ask me, has God gifted me to be single or gifted me to be married? Well, if you have a a sex drive, which God will give you the ability to control until you're married— then he hasn't gifted you to be single. He's, 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 he has another call for your life. So anyway, I hope that helps. It's a great question. Let's go to our next live caller who's waiting patiently. Indeed, I had to 
release that last call there. Now we're good to go. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, uh, I was. Um I was wondering, do you do you think that maybe we're living a lot further into the uh, last days than most people believe? I know that um, Revelation chapter nine verse eleven says that that you would know the beast by the number of its name, and the and and the number would be six six six. And uh, I was doing some research and stuff, and I and I found that like the word social security number and the word U.S. of America and devil shoal and a bunch of evil words all come to 666 and and uh words that come to 888 uh have you know jesus the trinity scriptures and stuff like that but even words like computer and calculator they all come to 666 as well well you know it's a it's a good question uh let me see if i can respond to it rick do you remember ronald reagan's middle name uh, Ronald Reagan, I don't remember. Well, um, l- let me just say this. Uh, there's been a lot of folks uh, over the course of time who have been called the Antichrist. I mean, for all kinds of reasons. Um, Woodrow. Was it Woodrow? Um, let, me, let me get to it. Okay. Um, a lot of people have been called the Antichrist for a number of different reasons. Uh, here, here's what's interesting um, Wilson, that's it. Ronald Wilson Reagan. How many letters are there in Ronald? Uh, six. How many in Wilson? Six. How many in Reagan? Six. Uh-oh. Oh, well, maybe he's the Antichrist. Hmm. Six, six, six. That's what some people said. Well, my name is Carl Joseph Brogy. How many letters in Brogy? Six. Joseph, my middle name. Six. How about if I take my first name and put it in Spanish, Carlos? Mm, six. I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so here's my point. You can manipulate names and numbers. Uh, in a lot of languages, num- numer- uh, letters have a numerical equivalent. Like in Greek, for instance, alpha is one, beta is two, and so forth. Um, in Latin, the same is true. Some have taken the saying on the Pope's crown and said, well, here it is. You take the statement that's written on the side of his crown, his hat, and it adds up to 666. And so some said he must therefore be the Antichrist. The fact is, is we don't know who the Antichrist is, and the people who will know the number of his name are those who are here during the time of the Great Tribulation. And so there will be some indeed numerical equivalent to the letters of the of that person's name uh, that is yet to be revealed and it won't be revealed until the time of the great tribulation now uh, I you know I wouldn't um, go too far with social security and all these other words that you can come up with and and try to come up with 666 we do know this we do know that there's coming a time when no one will be able to buy or sell anything without somehow taking the mark of the beast. How is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, Maybe it's going to be a tattoo. You know, sometimes we talk about the electronics. Uh, You know, you go to the vet now, and you have a regular vet, and the vet will implant in your dog's leg a little chip. And so he'll scan the chip, and it will give all the data on that dog. In fact, some dog, I think, in California, they found a dog in California from Massachusetts, and they somehow went to the vet, scanned it, and 
they found out who the real owner was. Um, that data is stored in a, in a microchip. Um, in the Air Force, they can put a chip under your skin to keep all your medical data. I don't know if it will happen like that. Uh, maybe it will be an actual physical tattoo. It's amazing to me how popular tattoos have become. I mean, it seems like everybody's brother has a tattoo these days. Uh, one of my friends, Mark Coppinger, he's the uh, president of... Uh, uh, the the Nashville branch of one of the Southern Baptist seminaries. He's my uh, son's father-in-law. And Mark said to me one day, he said, um, Carl, you know, everybody who uh, has a tattoo is not a criminal. But everybody who's a criminal has a tattoo. And we were talking about whether or not Christians should. He said, go to prison. Everybody's got a tattoo. And, uh, you know, listen, there's a lot of good people with tattoos. Now, whether you should get one or not, that's another debate and another theological question. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if people uh, would just have a literal tattoo. I do know this. I do know because the New Testament teaches imminency. That is that Jesus could come at any moment. That the one world system could have happened in the first century. It could have happened in the fifth century. Uh, But the fact that we have so much that is unfolding in our day tells us I think it's that much closer. So to get to the first part of your question, do I think we are approaching the last of the last days? Well, I really do. I think God is setting the stage. For instance, a lot of prophecy that Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse is centered around the nation of Israel. You read that in the first century and Seems to be no problem until 70 AD, which Jesus predicted uh, the temple would be destroyed. And indeed, uh, Titus Vespucian, the Roman general, came in in 70 AD and uh, crucified 28,000 Jews. He uh, destroyed the temple. Uh, They uh, burned it, and uh, it got so hot, literally the gold of the temple sunk between the stones and The greedy Roman army uh, wanted the gold, and they literally pried apart every stone so that not a single stone stood upon another, just as Jesus predicted. And the Jews were basically destroyed and decimated as a nation. So, you know, in the 5th century or the 10th century or the 15th century, if you had a born-again Christian preaching about Israel being God's national people from which he will bring about the second coming, some would scratch their head and say, well, I don't get it. And so some ended up spiritualizing the scripture and they made the church the new Israel because they didn't think, well, God would literally fulfill that promise. But listen, of the 300 plus promises concerning the first coming of Christ, Jesus literally fulfilled every single one. What would make us think that he would not literally fulfill all the other prophecies as it related to the second return of his son from heaven? But for those to literally be fulfilled, Israel has to be a nation. A lot has to be in place. Well, God's done a lot. Uh, He has made Israel a nation. He has allowed communism to fall and some two and a half million Jews from the former Soviet Union to migrate into Israel. There's only 15 million Jews on the planet. Uh, Amazing. Uh, They occupy a piece of real estate that's not much bigger than Delaware or Rhode Island, and yet they have the world's attention. We're looking very closely this week at Israel and a possible attack on Iran. Uh, The president of Syria came out recently, just last week, and said, um, if Israel does some things, uh, Israel will regret it. You go to uh, Israel and you say, hey, look, at all these Arab nations around you, who's who's your worst enemy? Of all these people, who, who, who are the worst guys? Who do you appreciate the least? They'll tell you in a heartbeat, Syria. 
Well, something is happening in Syria, and of course, he's made some threats. And well, let me just read a prophecy. It has never been fulfilled. Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the history of the world, still standing. But this is a prophecy the Bible makes, for instance, in Isaiah 17. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin. The cities will be forsaken and so on. The city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Amram will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Uh, It's going to fade and so forth. And that's going to happen. And the place is going to be a pit, a ruin. That's never happened in human history. But you could see how maybe potentially in our day that could happen, where there could be some Middle East conflict and Syria could get involved and Maybe Israel drops one of its nukes on Damascus, and it becomes a ruin. Uh, the United Nations uh, in September uh, first precipitated through a statement President Obama made last May. He said, I think that uh, Jerusalem should be divided, that there should be a split city, a dual capital, um, a Palestinian state, which they officially applied for in September, and um that the Arab people should have their own state and that Jerusalem should be shared as a capital. Well, the Bible says, for I will gather all the nations. This is Zechariah 14 against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The house is plundered. The women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will be not cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when he fights on on, on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east and so forth. Messiah will literally come. His feet will literally, physically, actually touch the Mount of Olives. The very mountain he ascended to heaven from, he is going to literally plant his feet on. But he speaks of a divided Jerusalem. Now, that is going to precede the coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. The fact that we are even speaking about Jerusalem being divided. Now, they're speaking of it in terms of peaceful terms, but it's not going to happen peacefully. There's going to be a war, and the city of Jerusalem is going to be divided. The Bible predicts it, and it gives a flow of events, and it appears the second coming, which happens after the rapture of the church, will quickly follow. So you can see the stage is being set. We're living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of immorality and days of sexual perversion. You know, people are, the church, the body of Christ in, in Charleston this week is just shook up because of this fellow who, um, you know, molested all these children, this youth leader. And he was engaged in like 11 different youth ministries, was the um, assistant headmaster of a Christian school in Charleston. Everybody knew him. I met the guy. Uh, I met him. I thought, I thought, quite honestly, I told my wife, I said, I don't know about him. I think he's gay. Well, he ended up being gay. And, um, but he's, everybody's lovely. Everybody liked him and a likable guy, but a predator and preyed on a lot of kids. And um, we don't know how many he's, lives he, he had t- he's attempted to ruin. And he's in jail this morning. We're living in days of perversion. You know, the assistant coach there at Penn State, um, you know, he's charged with, you know, taking his nice little sweet 
mission to poor underprivileged kids and all the while he's got an evil motive supposedly i know he has not been proven guilty yet innocent until proven guilty but we're we're just living in days of perversion it's everywhere in days of immorality it's everywhere and that's what the days will be like before jesus christ returns from heaven and that's not just an american phenomenon wherever you go it's multiplying like never before. And so God's people ought to have their eyes wide open. Look, no one knows the day or the hour. But I tell people, since the rapture happens before the second coming, it's like when you go into Walmart at this time of year, the Christmas decorations went up. The Christmas decorations went up about a week or two before Halloween. When, when they go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see God setting the stage for the second coming, you know the rapture is that much closer. So open your eyes wide up. Um, But don't get fanatical and read into the text of Scripture about 666 that God doesn't say. Uh, No one will know the meaning of his name and number until the time of the great tribulation. And by the grace of God, I'm not planning to be here. I'm planning to be raptured if it happens in my lifetime. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tdl at net. as has this listener. They would like you to explain what your walls are continually before me means in the 16th verse of Isaiah 49. It's an interesting chapter of Scripture. Let me just turn there real fast to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lives about 700 years before Christ. And uh, he lives at a time when, um, you know, the people of Israel are living in idolatry. They're living in rebellion. They're living um, in ignoring the prophets of God. They're really not paying attention uh, to God's prophet and what God's prophet is saying. And, and, And the prophets during this time when the kingdom's divided, it's divided into two parts. Um... There's the northern kingdom called Israel, made up of 10 tribes. And there's the southern kingdom uh, called Judah, made up of two tribes. Some of the prophets come to the northern kingdom. They say, listen, if you don't repent, God's going to judge you. He's going to hammer you with the Assyrian people. They, They don't listen, and judgment comes on the people of God. Other folks live in the southern kingdom. God sends prophets to them. By the way, God did exactly what he said in uh, 722 B.C., and they're carried away by the Assyrians, and God says, look, what happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to you, and God ends up doing the same. So he says, but Zion said, and he makes this promise to Zion. Zion, by the way, is another name for Jerusalem. The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And so he asks a question, you know, and they're, you know, they're moaning and they're groaning and God hasn't forgotten them. Now, God had disciplined them at this point because they ignored the warning of men like Isaiah and they didn't pay attention to what God's man said. And, oh, God, you don't care about us. You're not blessing us. No, God, sometimes blessing comes through discipline. And that's what was happening in Judah in the southern kingdom of whose capital is Zion or Jerusalem. So Zion says, the capital says, the Lord's forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God asks the question, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these forget, but I will not forget. You may have some mothers who are such wicked, vile mothers. They may forget their nursing child, though that very rarely happens. There's a natural love that God gives. But he says, even if they were that wicked, 
I'm a righteous God. I'll never forget. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. You know, I'm looking at my palms right now as I'm speaking. I can see all the lines and all the marks and all the calluses. And God sees that part of my body. He is, he, he likens me to be inscribed on his palm. That's how personal his care is. Your walls are continually before me. What walls is he speaking? He's speaking about the walls of Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem that were their protective means. And they were fearful that their enemies would come in and crush them. And God says, look, I know what I'm doing. And of course, he's magnifying his grace and his care for them as a vehicle to get them to repent. Look, I love you. Jesus would say the hairs of your head are numbered. Here Isaiah says you're you're written in God's palms, your your walls that protect your city. God sees and cares about and cares about you're not being run over by your enemies. But you would think the grace of God would move them towards repentance. But unfortunately it did not. And so God dealt with them and he judged them. And it was a sad story. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at uh, tbl at net. Our next listener did do indeed that. They write, could you please explain 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8? I recently heard someone use this scripture to teach that there are steps to the new birth. They, they taught that just as a natural birth constitutes water, blood, then spirit, that the spiritual birth was the same process. Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's what this text is, is speaking about. Um, indeed, it's a challenging passage exegetically and in light of uh, certain manuscripts um, that maybe read a little bit differently, though it affects nothing. But in First John 5, not everyone has the benefit of a Bible in front of them. So let me just back up just a little bit. I'm going to get a running start into the text by beginning here in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you know the Lord Jesus, his commandments are not a headache to you. It's a pleasure. He's just said we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. How did he love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And so the motivation for loving God is unconditional acceptance. Uh, His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever he says is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And that's the general principle in the word of God, that someone who has had a birth from above overcomes the world system. They have lived a life in which they entered into a relationship with God by faith, and they live from faith to faith, as Paul echoes in the book of Romans. And so he says, and who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he uh, has borne witness concerning his Son. I think water here is a, a reference to Christ's baptism when his work really begun, 
when he foreshadowed through John's baptism of him. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm following Jesus in baptism. Not really. Now, you may be following his command and the great commission to go into all the world and to make believers or converts of all people, baptizing them, not in the names, but in the names singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God. And so you, maybe as a new believer, put on your wedding band. You publicly confess Jesus. How did they do that in the first century? Well, by by baptism. That's why, by the way, Jesus can say, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. But then the balancing rest of the verse says, he who disbelieves is condemned. You're, You're not saved by baptism. But if you are saved, you're willing to confess Jesus openly. Well, Jesus really was prefiguring his work. And baptism, by the way, really is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. And, and that's why it's done biblically by immersion. There is a perfectly good word in the Bible for baptiz- uh, for, for sprinkling. It's the Greek word ratizo, never used in reference to this ordinance. So the word baptism, I know it has kind of a, oh, a religious tone to it in our day, but if you lived in the first century, it had numerous secular meanings. For instance, if you had a piece of white cloth and you were someone who dyed cloths for a living, you wanted to turn it blue, you would baptize it, you would immerse it into blue dye. That's what you did. It had a first and secondary meaning, but its primary meaning was to immerse, its secondary meaning was to identify. And so when one is immersed, they are openly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so water here is a reference to Christ's initiatory work when he uh, by baptism, prefigures what he is going to do. And then the, here the word blood is a reference to his death on the cross, that he would indeed shed his innocent, sinless blood. Um, and so when you come to Jesus Christ, you come through the work of Christ by the one whose public ministry was initiated as pictured and prefigured in John's baptism that was realized literally, physically, actually when he died on a cross and affirmed in your heart when the Spirit of God applies it. The Father decreed it. The Son procured it. The Spirit of God applies it. The Father decreed. Here's how salvation will happen. The Son says, I'm willing, Hebrews, to take on a human body and go perform what is necessary. And the Spirit of God makes it all real. You can't come to the Father but through the Son and by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that men, Paul says, confess Jesus as Lord. And so the three are in total agreement. There is a triune work that takes place in our salvation. And it's a beautiful passage. But I don't think it has anything to do with what the Church of Christ and others would make this as steps into salvation. That's nonsense. Uh, they make baptism a uh, mark, uh, a, a requirement, not a mark, but a requirement to conversion, as does the Christian church denomination. Uh, and that, that's heresy. That's a different gospel. All right. In Matthew 7, verse 6, the Sermon on the Mount, we are instructed right. not to cast our pearls to swine. How does a Christian know when to stop sharing their faith so that they're not violating this instruction? Well, it's a good question, and it comes right after one of the most misquoted, misapplied verses in all the Bible. You know, uh, the chapter opens. It's part of the same sermon. Remember, the divisions are artificial. Do not judge lest you be judged. For the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And so people, you, you talk to them about 
well, you know, you're living with this woman whom you're not married to is wrong. And they'll come back and say, judge not lest you be judged. And of course, that's not what the word of God is saying. God has made a judgment on a number of issues. God has made a judgment that adultery and homosexuality and drunkenness is sinful. You're not judging people when you speak against that. God has made a judgment that Jesus is not simply a man, that he's Lord. God has made a judgment that men are saved by grace through faith. And and that's why, by the way, he can say in John's gospel to judge with righteous judgment. How, How can you judge with righteous judgment except for the fact that God has first spoken? John 7, 24. So there is a place to judge. In fact, uh, that's the whole point here of 7-6. Don't give what is holy to dogs. That's a judgment on your part. You've come to the point where you've assumed that someone is a dog, so to speak, that you're casting the gospel pearl before a pig that is going to trample it in the mud and not even appreciate it. Now, um, when do you do that? Well, you need to be do it carefully. You need to do it thoughtfully. But there can come a point when your your sense is, is that someone is not really asking honest questions. You know, sometimes you deal with unsaved people, and they're asking hard questions. Well, okay, everything you say is in the Bible. How do we know the Bible's true? Or, or that statement you've just made is predicated on the fact that Jesus is not just a man, but God. How do we know he's God? You know, and so they throw questions like that at you, sometimes from an honest heart. I mean, they're really searching people. And we need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence. But there are other people who ask some of these questions, not out of an honest heart, but out of a disdain for the things of God. They're like a hog that cannot differentiate between a, a pea pod and a pearl and uh, will trample over the preciousness of the word of God and almost with a, a blasphemous spirit make fun and ridicule the Lord Jesus. And when you meet people like that, just stop. Don't waste your breath. Don't speak holy things to someone who has such a disdain. You'll be doing them a favor. In some cases, it's appropriate to shake the dust off of your feet and to walk away because of their disdain for things that are truly holy. Now, I can't say that that's happened to me a lot of time in my life, but it's happened sometimes. And so that's when you judge with righteous judgment and don't let the gospel pearl be trampled underfoot by men. Uh, do what God does. God, God practices, by the way, what he preaches. Sometimes he withholds the gospel pearl to some people because they won't respond to what God has given them. And because they won't respond to what God has given them and in creation and conscience, God gives them over. And sometimes we just need to walk away and let people continue in their sin. And only a change of heart where you say, and, and by the way, sometimes it will surprise you. Some people that you think, you know, if we looked at the Apostle Paul, we'd say, well, man, he, he has no interest in the things of God. He's a Christ hater. He's not neutral. He, he goes into homes and he drags away moms and fathers. And he was engaged in the first martyrdom of a saint, Stephen. He, he, he's not neutral. He's anti-Christ. He's the spirit of antichrist is an epitome. But God saved him. So you need to be discerning. Sometimes things change in people's hearts, and but you also need to at times 
practice righteous judgment and withhold the gospel pearl. And the Spirit of God can just give you a sense of that as you seek him and ask him for wisdom and help. Uh, he gives wisdom to those who ask from a pure and clean heart, as James 1 teaches. 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next uh, listener writes, one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of knowledge. They define it as the ability to discover, accumulate, analyze, and organize biblical information and ideas which are pertinent to the growth and well-being of the body. Yet scripture refers to the gift of the word of knowledge, not the gift of knowledge. There seem to be two different meanings for this gift. What exactly is it? Is it the reception of divine words for the past and present situations as when Jesus knew about the husbands of the woman at the well? Or is it more of a discipline with organizing and perhaps teaching the truths of Scripture? Well, it's a a good question, and you don't want to get too semantical here, but you do make a valid point. Um, Here's the thing. There are certain gifts that I think at one point in the history of the church had a, a dual function to them both revelational and expositional. Uh, There are certain gifts like a word of knowledge or the gift of prophecy that at one point had indeed a revelational dimension to it. So some today would argue that there's no longer the gift of prophecy because if you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, he's dealing with prophets in the church. And and he's dealing with people who can become direct conduits of revelation. And it was necessary because, remember, there was a time in the history of the church when the Bible was just being written. It was under construction. It was a work in progress. And so people couldn't go to Ephesians or Galatians or or First Peter or what, what does God think about this? And so God sometimes in a church service would literally speak through a person and the equivalent would be like reading scripture today. And that's, by the way, why a woman could prophesy in church. That's why she could be a conduit of revelation. And she could, in essence, become the voice piece of God, where God would speak scripture through her. But there was another side of prophecy as well. And that side of prophecy was not revelational, but it was preaching in nature. And some, if they view prophecy or a word of knowledge simply as revelational and insight, a direct revelation from God, then they would say that those gifts are not given today. But I think there was another side to it, and that's really what is being underscored in the definition that you've uh, presented here, where someone is able to—I'll give you an example of someone who I believe had the gift of knowledge or words of knowledge, and it was— Dr. John Walford, he was the president of Dallas Seminary for many, many years. Now, listen to Dr. Walford preach. You wouldn't say he was really a dynamic preacher. He wasn't. Some people would actually find him very dry, though he probably did more to contribute to the body of Christ in the 20th century than a lot of people we can think of. He had the gift of knowledge. He had the ability to accumulate systematically the truth of God's word and organize it in such a way so that people with gifts of preaching and pastor teachers could take it and use it. I, I think of a lot of works he did. Uh, he did a classic work on the Holy Spirit. He, he did the Encyclopedia Knowledge of Bible Prophecy where he went through every single prophecy in the word of God 
those that have been fulfilled, those that are yet to be fulfilled. And he listed them and categorized them and explained them contextually. He taught guys like myself and Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah and Tony Evans and a lot of people that you listen to on Christian radio today and a lot of resources. Sometimes I'll hear somebody preach and I can tell you what page they're reading off of, of what Dr. Walford taught because I've read his works. And um, he had the gift of knowledge, the ability to accumulate. But did he have new revelation? No. So the new revelation, it'd be like the gift of prophecy today. Uh, I would tell you today that maybe an example of the gift of prophecy would be someone like Charles Stanley. Uh, If you listen to Dr. Stanley preach, and we broadcast him, what, at uh, 10 o'clock at night or 930? 930. Yeah, 930 at night. 9 to 930. 9 to 930. He came on once at 10, but he's on 9 to 930 now, and... Uh, you wouldn't say he's your typical Bible teacher where he would take a single passage of Scripture and exegete it verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Not typically what he would do. What is he characterized by doing? He's typically characterized as taking a, a single message, a single theme that he wants to hammer home and apply to your life. He usually has like one major point that he doesn't want you to miss. Listen, watch this. You know, he'll, 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 ha- he'll hammer it home. Um, that's the gift of prophecy in function. There was a time when God would give that revelation and then that person would preach that revelation. So there was not just a, a foretelling, but a foretelling. I think just the foretelling dimension is here. And the same with knowledge, the accumulating dimension, but not not the uh, new revelation. Sometimes Christians will loosely say, well, God gave me a revelation. He didn't give you a revelation. God isn't giving you any revelation. It would be more accurate to say, well, God gave me an illumination. All the revelation that God has given has been given. He has spoken. Uh, His word is found in the 66 books of the Bible. There is no 67th book like the Book of Mormon. God's not giving a new revelation. And if you think about it, virtually every cult... Every uh, sect of true Christianity is based on some aberrant view, some, some extra revelation, some dream, some vision, some tablet, some book uh, that supposedly God spoke or gave to the individual by which he now speaks to you. But that's not the case. Listen, the Book of Mormon and the Bible can't both be true. I tell that to Mormon missionaries. I'll say, well, look, they're not the, they can't both be true. Alma chapter 7, verse 14 says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. The Bible prophets said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The New Testament says he's born in Bethlehem. He was either born in Bethlehem or he was born in a town five miles away called Jerusalem. He wasn't born in both places. They both can't be right. And so um, there is no new revelation, but there is illumination where God takes what he has already given, the Scripture, and he illumines its truth to your mind. He, he, he pops it off the page into your heart. And you see through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, either expressed through a pastor, teacher, or uh, someone with the gift of preaching or, or whatever, or exhortation, or, or through your own personal study of Scripture, and it jumps into your heart and you see it, and how maybe he wants to apply it to your life. So anyway, that's a great question. Um, 
appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Ryan from Cooley, North Carolina, wants to know if you have ever heard of the Christian guitar player known as Phil Kagey. And if so, what are your thoughts about him? This person writes, he's the most talented guitar player I've ever heard and is a true man of God. If not, if you haven't heard it, he highly recommends you check him out on YouTube. I first saw Phil Kagey in concert in 1976. He was at Tremont Temple in Boston, Massachusetts. And yeah, he's a brother in Christ and produced a lot of good music. And uh, I haven't, honestly, haven't heard him since. So uh, I'm sure hopefully he's still preaching good music. And uh, there are a lot of good guys who've come and gone and some who haven't been so good. But um, but Phil, at least back in the 70s, was walking closely with the Lord and God was using him. I haven't followed his life or ministry since then. He, he's... He's, he's getting up there in age now. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, we've got Eric from Buford who writes, A Christian man with a heart full of love for God and motivation to please him is in a great relationship with a wonderful woman. A son was given to this family 21 months ago, and that blessing has been the most heart-changing event in his life with the exception of the moment he led Christ to his life. He has a desire to get a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Christian Counseling. During preparation, he has given thought to a future pastoral position. Prior to becoming a Christian, the individual went through a marriage and divorce with no children, as well as a few other relationships. One of these relationships, or the breaking off of the relationship, was the devastation that led him to accepting Christ and never looking back. My question is, with the divorces of this man's life prior to becoming a Christian, is this a man unable to become a pastor while remaining biblically obedient? Well, let me encourage you, because it deserves a careful sharp answer. And if you listen to my message on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, on the qualifications for an elder, I walk through what has become somewhat of a controversial phrase, the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. Uh, And I go through six positions that people have held in the history of the church. But since I have less than a minute left, let me just give you a quick answer. The answer is no, you can't be a pastor. You would not meet the qualification of having been married only once. Does that mean that you can't be used of God to serve as a Christian pastor, a missionary, or a teacher in a Christian school or in some other capacity? There's all kinds of things you can do, all kinds of ministries that you can engage in. Um, sometimes though, people confuse a call to ministry with a call to the pastor and God may be tugging your heart and calling you into the ministry, but he's not calling you to be a pastor. And, um, again, listen to that message. So you, you'll want to ask, well, what, what is God calling me to do? Well, take it one step at a time. God's will is typically unfolded with time. It's like driving down the highway at night. You don't have to see three miles in front of you. you only need to see 300 yards, when you can see that 300 yards, you can get then see the next 300 yards. So take the next step. God will show you. He'll unfold his plan, his purpose for your life. Well, we're out of time today for the Bible Line. Thanks for allowing us to do it. Through your generous support here at WAGP, we're on the air, this listener-supported station, 24-7. And uh, we hope that this ministry is an encouragement to your life. God bless you. Have a great day.